Well, I trust you enjoyed the time we've had already this morning, worshiping God through our singing. It's always amazing to me at this time of year with our singing, there seems to be a new energy, a new joy when it comes to our singing, and it always sounds rather wonderful to me. I I thought this morning antiphonal singing was specifically good. But now it's our time to worship our Savior through the study of His Word together. And of course, we all know that this Sunday is the Sunday before we celebrate Christmas. Each and every year, there is a very focus. This time of year is a very focused time for our church. There's a focus on Christmas really throughout the whole world. I'm not sure. I haven't been to every country in the world. I've been to several, and every country I've ever been to, they celebrate Christmas. And it opens opportunities for us to talk with others about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe we can talk to people who throughout other times of year are not really open to talking about the things of God at all, not really willing to listen. And what we know as the Christmas story, as we have looked at in our adult Sunday school this morning, as well as reading in Matthew chapter 1, all of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, they're, they're full of a whole lot of wonder. They're full of a whole lot of blessing for the people that were there that day, and especially for us who believe upon Jesus Christ as our own Savior, even today, as we think about what took place. Every year that we come to the Christmas time, as I begin to think about this time of year and read through the scriptures surrounding the events that we celebrate, I'm continually drawn really more to the implications of Christmas rather than the event of that day in which Christ was born. Of course, it's it's not in my heart or mind or in my intentions to minimize the event in any kind of way, in a historical way. In fact, how could any of us minimize what God has accomplished and what we read about there in those texts? Because it was through that event that God was revealed to the world as being, as we read in Matthew 1, Emmanuel, God with us. The long-awaited Messiah being born, the heavens rejoicing, the angelic host singing at his birth. And even the historical distance, even the obscurity of his birth, the world has seen and heard, both through the testimony of those who were there, and the testimony of us that the King of glory was, in fact, born, that He became man. And that was a glorious day, as we see in the Scriptures. And my mind seems to wonder about that all the time and the other things that were happening in light of that moment. Why? Well, because there was so much more to that event than just the birth. We see nativity scenes. We see nativity events, and we see people role-playing in those moments, all focused on the baby in the manger or the 
event of the birth. But there was much more involved with the birth of Jesus than we normally like to think about at Christmas time. And so this morning, I want us to focus on a couple of those truths. And I want to do that from a passage that we wouldn't normally turn to at this time of year. But I think it it really tells the full essence of the Christmas reality. It's found for us in Philippians chapter 2. So if you are not there already, turn there. And I want to begin our time just with a word of prayer as we think about this phenomenal passage. Heavenly Father, once again, we are here before you. We are here to learn of you, to know you, and to see and hear from you that we might know you more more intimately, with greater intensity, so that we might obey with greater intensity. So Lord, take these words and massage them into our hearts. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. If we're not one of your children this morning, if we don't know you by faith, then would you please arrest our hearts with the attention of our sin that we might repent of it and turn to you so that we walk out of this building this day as a child of yours once and for all. And for those who do know the Savior, for us who do know Jesus Christ by faith, may these words be impressed upon our hearts so deeply and so heavily that we share them with others and that it impacts us in how we live each moment of every day. So that the reality of this incarnation, this Christmas story would be an everyday reality upon our hearts and not just one moment in the year. Thank you for these times. Bless it to your name and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to focus our attention here back in Philippians chapter 2, primarily on two primary realities that are essential to the full story of Christmas. One of them is the self-emptying of God. And the other is the self-humiliation or the self-humbling of God. These are the two realities that encompass the full reality of Christmas, the self-emptying of God and the self-humbling of God that had to happen, or you and I who desire to be saved and you and I who are saved would know nothing of that and we would never know Christmas and what it's really all about unless we had known what God did. Follow along as I read for us verses 5 to 11. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing to the Philippian church, says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, when we look at this entire passage, we realize very quickly, and if you had been in adult Sunday school class over the last several months, you would realize as well that this is proclaiming in a loud voice concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is in fact God. It is stating in clear terms that before Jesus Christ was born, before he was on this earth in a physical reality, Before the very Christmas story ever happened, Jesus was fully God. He was eternally God, and he continued to be God throughout his entire earthly life and is still God in the heavens today. And so that is the overall driving point of this text. If we went away with nothing else, we would go away with that grand concept in our minds and never doubt it ever, ever again and be able to proclaim it to others, Jesus is God. In fact, the Apostle Paul simply makes that clear right here out of the gate. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, obviously, in the context of Philippians, Paul is using this as a grand example, as an illustration, as well as a doctrinal thought, a lesson for us, us who know Jesus Christ by faith, this is a lesson for us on humility, This is a massive lesson on humility and how we are to be in light of how God was. The humility that is to be expressed in the Christian life is to look like and act like Christ's humility. We understand that we are to be humble when we think about that in light of who Christ is, we are crushed by the conviction that that brings in our lives, or at least we ought to be. We have to carry with us this sense of heaviness by the reality that our lives come nowhere close to that in any kind of way. But for our emphasis this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the reality of deity. Jesus Christ is God. He has always been the very God of gods in essence, in every way. In other words, what was true of Christ before the virgin birth, before Mary was ever with child, in the Godhead, before he ever entered into time, what was true of him in the glories of heaven is and was continually true of him throughout his entire manhood. None of that was ever taken away. To say it another way, Christ did not cease to be God when he became man. That is why it says, 
in verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Christ was not robbing God the Father of anything in order to be deity himself. No part of the Godhead robs any other part of the Godhead in order to manifest themselves in any kind of way as God. They are one God in three persons, co-equal, fully God in essence, in every way. And so right here, right out of the gate, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we hear this declaration that Jesus Christ is God in every way. Although He existed in the form of God, that should take us to the place of stunning reality. That here is God. Here is the Creator God. Here is the very One who existed as God. Right out of the gate, the declaration that Jesus Christ is God in every way. And when we think about that, it raises some very interesting implications in reference to Christmas. And that little baby born in seeming obscurity in Bethlehem, the little small hamlet just a few miles away from what is now Jerusalem, a baby born to relatively unknown parents. What took place with Christ for Him to be God with us, and just as important as that, what took place with Christ for us to be with God. Let me say that again. What took place for Jesus Christ, or what took place with Jesus Christ for God to be with us, and what took place with Jesus Christ for us to be with God? That's the reality of Christmas. The answer to those two questions encapsulates the full meaning of Christmas. So what are those answers? What took place with Jesus Christ for God to be with us? Notice Philippians 2 lays this out for us with clarity. The first is this, God emptied himself. God emptied himself. Notice verse 7, but this is talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God, emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So the first thing we see is this reality, God emptying himself. In other words, no one ever freely or more powerfully did anything to Jesus Christ. All that ever happened to Jesus Christ as He walked and lived on the earth, which, by the way, He created. All that ever happened to Him was always endorsed and always allowed by Him. He was in control. He's God. He emptied Himself, it says. And in this case, no one took away his deity. No one removed his glory. He emptied himself. 
That phrase demands that we understand what emptying means. Because as we hear that word and we hear it in our own English language, it conjures up ideas of of something that was full that is now removed of its fullness. And yet we understand, if we understand God at all, if we know who God is, that God cannot change, that God cannot be something other than what He is by His very essence, then we also know that God could not empty Himself of His deity and remain God. So whatever this emptying is, and whatever this emptying was, it was not Christ ceasing to be God. We have to understand that. We cannot look at this passage and go, okay, yeah, Christ was God when He existed outside of time, but when He entered into time, He wasn't God anymore. That can nothing be farthest from the truth. That cannot be what emptying means, or He has ceased, therefore, to be God. So what is this emptying? Well, Paul tells us that this emptying was not, in fact, a losing of something, but rather it was a taking on of something. It was a taking on of something. Notice first, God the Son accepted a servant's place. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So right here we have commentary, if you will, words of explanation in this first statement that help explain what was happening on that first Christmas when Christ entered into time. God was taking on the essential character and the essential nature of a servant. The word is doulos. Doulos in the original you have the same Bible translation that I do, the New American Standard, that says that he was a bond servant. He took on the form of a bond servant. And the full weight of that word carries the idea of a willing slave, a willing servant, one that is indentured by choice. In other words, God the Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, took on the position of a slave, and he did it willingly. He's the one who did it. No one forced that upon him. No part of the Godhead forced that upon him. He willingly took that on as a position. Well, that only raises another question. A slave of whom? A slave of another part of the co-equal Godhead. He became a willing slave of God the Father. In fact, here's how Jesus Christ said it in John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just... Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, what I hear, I I, I judge. I'm so tied in with the Father. I and the Father are one, he says in another place in John. I'm so linked in with the Father in that sense. I'm the servant of the Father in this sense that whatever He says, I say. Whatever He does, I do. So that what you see in me is 
God. Even though I've taken this form of a bond slave. And so we have to understand that Jesus Christ was never a slave of men or a slave to men. He was always the perfect slave of the Father. So in his self-emptying, he took on the essence of a slave. But that's not all that we see here. That's not all that explains this emptying. Because second, notice, in that position of a slave, he came to a sinful people. He came to a sinful people, right? And being made in the likeness of men, it says, verse 7, and being found in appearance as a man. Some of your translations may say he was made in the likeness of men. He was made in the likeness of men. That terminology was made is not good translating. Why? Because nothing outside of Christ made Christ anything. What was the action in completing Christ, taking on humility, was the very act of Himself, His self-emptying. It wasn't somebody else exerting something on Christ, and therefore He was made into that, like somebody took Him in a bunch and a ball and shaped Him into something else. No, it was Him self-emptying. It was Him taking on. It was Himself that did this. Christ became man by His own divine working. He was not made a man. He became a man. In other words, what He was not before, i.e. not in time, in the glories of heaven as the second person of the Trinity, what He was not before, by His doing He became. That's the idea. And in doing so, he became a real man. Not just any man, a real man and the only God-man. So he is the divine Son of God, and he retained at all times all the fullness of his deity, even though he was fully man, yet without sin. So he is fully man, yet without sin, fully God. And therefore, Paul says he was found in appearance as a man. He was found in appearance as a man. He was human. Where? In Bethlehem, on that morning when Mary birthed Jesus He was found in appearance as a man. He wasn't something unusual. He was a baby. By the way, the word appearance is the word schema or scheme. I simply say that because it's different than the word form. Some of your translators may use the word form. He was found in the form of a man. Sometimes we like to think of form as a word for appearance. But I think that's confusing to people. 
form and appearance are not the same. And they're certainly not the same here. Because form deals with essence. Scheme or schema deals with the appearance. Deals with the reality of what mankind recognized him to be. In other words, what he appeared to be in the eyes of men. He was just like us. He was actually a human person. So we must know for sure when we look at this that what happened on Christmas morning was in fact God with us. So what the prophet said of old, what Matthew said in his first chapter about Jesus being born and relating the birth of Jesus and sharing the passage from the prophets because the Lord had said what the prophets would say was actually true and actually happened. And Paul declares it here to the Philippian believers. Know this about Jesus. He was God with us. He isn't just a baby in the manger. The Christmas story isn't just that. Oh, how cute and how adorable that little baby was. Christmas isn't simply, let's celebrate the birthday of Jesus. No. It's actually God with us. God with us. And it was God with us so that he might be God for us. This is the second part that Paul gets to here in this passage. Notice what he says. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. So here's Paul's second main point. The first main point was God emptied himself. The second is God humbled himself. That ought to be shocking to us. Because this was, in fact, not just his beginning. This was the sum total of his entire life. It was a life of self-imposed humility. It was self-imposed humility. He did it by coming to earth as a baby born in obscurity to relatively unknown parents. It was self-imposed humility as he lived his life all the way to the point of his death. It was all self-imposed humility. This is what crushes us or should crush us when we think about the life of Jesus Christ as a Christian because we as Christians are to live as Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves. How in the world? This is God. God says, you're to have that attitude in you. You see him emptying himself and him humbling self himself are in fact the main points of Christmas. All the other actions that we find here in Philippians chapter 2 point to or support those two main points. Jesus Christ, God and always God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God. 
You see, for us to be like God, for us to be like God, for us to even be in the presence of God, God had to give us something from Himself. The only way God accepts us is if we have His righteousness. It is His stripes that we are healed. It is through Him that we can be with God. So we rob from God to be with God. By God's grace, He gives us. And yet Jesus Christ did not regard it. He didn't think it robbery at all to be equal with God. Why? Because He is God. He emptied Himself, even though that was the case, when He took on the form of a servant. And when He became in the likeness of you and I, when He was made, when He Himself shaped Himself as a man in the womb of the virgin. And then Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, continually humbled Himself. How? How? How was he humbled? Well, it says right here, he accepted a selfless life. He accepted a selfless life. Notice what it says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, through his self-imposed humility came Obedience even to the point of dying. And what kind of death was it? Death on a cross. That was the climax of his humiliation, the climax of his self-humiliating. This was a death reserved by the Romans for the most heinous of criminals of the day the most heinous of unwanted slaves, people who just wanted to get rid of others. It was never for citizens of the Roman government and for a Jew. And what the Jews thought, the cross was the reminder that whoever was hanging on it, according to Deuteronomy 21, they were a curse of God. They were under the curse of God. And so here is God hanging on a tree as a curse of God. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21 says. So Christ, being a man, humbles himself to become obedient to the point of that kind of death. Not, not, not some kind of accidental death whereby he was riding in a chariot one day and somehow the wheel fell off and he hit his head on a rock and oh, oops, somebody died. What an accident. No. He was cursed. A death in the most public and most heinous of ways. So you can see right here, we have the entire picture of Christmas. Of the entire see the birth of Jesus is just one part of it. That's just one one piece. Right here we have Emmanuel. We have God with us, taking the form of a servant and being found as a man. 
He actually came. He was actually here. He actually walked on the very planet He created so that He might be God for us. This was the point of His death on the cross, that He might be God for us because that's what we needed. None of us could pay the price of our sin. No human born of Adam could ever pay the price of sin. Only one born of God. And so Jesus Christ came not simply to be born, but Jesus Christ came to die. He came to die. Because without His death, there is no Christmas. Without His death, there is no Christmas. So what was the outcome of all of this? What was the outcome of all of this? What was the outcome of His self-emptying? What was the outcome of His self-humiliating? Well, Paul sums it up here in verses 9 through 11. Paul sums it up. Therefore, this is in light of the reality of what Jesus Christ did. Therefore, God, that is God the Father, exalts Him. God the Father uh, praises Him above all things and bestows on Him the name which is above every name. What name is that? Jesus The same name that Joseph was commanded by the angel to give to that baby who was born that night in Bethlehem. You will name him Jesus. Joseph had no one in his family that name. It was unheard of to name a male, especially the firstborn male, not by someone who was a family member, and they had no one named Yeshua in the family. And yet Joseph followed the command of God to a T, And so he is exalted above all. He is given a name above all. So that at that name, every knee should bow. God came to man back in Genesis. After he created Adam and Eve, God came to the garden and walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to man in that baby, born there in the manger, born as a man, supernaturally created, supernaturally formed. Once Jesus died, He came to man again from the grave. He rose from the grave ascending to heaven. And yet here we see that every knee should bow because one day Jesus Christ will come again. And He will come to man again. And it will not be as Creator. It will not be as a baby. It will not be as the resurrected Savior. It will be as the judge. It will be as judge. 
And every knee will bow. It doesn't matter if you say there is no God. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. It doesn't matter if you say that I do what I wish. It doesn't matter if you're just believing in secular humanism. It doesn't matter whoever you are. You will bow to the name Jesus. You will bow. You will confess. It doesn't matter if you're in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Wherever your position is. There will be a profession from your mouth because every tongue will confess. Every tongue will say. Every tongue will acknowledge. Every eye will see and every tongue will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because the glory of God the Father is at stake. And God will give His glory to no one else. And His glory will be exacted from His creation because He created His creation in order that He might receive glory. And those of us who are part of this fallen humanity because of sin will give God glory whether you believe Jesus Christ or not. This is the essence of Christmas. God came to be with us so that God might die for us so that God would be glorified by all of us forever. Forever. doesn't matter if you're redeemed or condemned. Our desire is that all men would be saved and yet all men do not believe Jesus Christ, God the Son, became man so that God the Father would be glorified by all of His creation. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, became man so that God the Father might glorify the Son to all His creation. Therefore, Jesus Christ, God with us, took on a servant's place, came to a sinful people and became obedient to death so that God might receive all the praise. See, Christmas is not so much about His birth as it is about His death. Because without His birth, He has no death. Without his birth, there is no death. And without his death, there is no eternal life with him. There's only eternal condemnation. So without his death, there is no true reality of Christmas. And there is no eternal praise of God. So let's not forget what Christmas is truly about. We think about it this week. So we come back tomorrow to celebrate the eve of Christmas. God with us 
in order to be the way of salvation for us. That's the idea. That's the reality. So Paul says then in verse 12, just to put an exclamation point on why he wrote this. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more even in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying earn your salvation. He's saying fear God. Fear God. Know that Jesus Christ is God. Fear God and walk in humility. Walk in humility before God and trust God. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Embrace Jesus Christ as eternal, as God, the God-man. Embrace Him as your salvation. Fear God. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's what Christmas is all about. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we can thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We can thank you for what you have accomplished through his birth, the incarnation, his life, his resurrection, the death that he paid on the cross. What an amazing thing. We love the baby. Oh, but Lord, let's not just love the baby. Let's love the God who is there. God with us. Lived a perfect life, died an undeserved death, that we who needed righteousness might have righteousness in him. And so you commanded, you did not ask, you commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe. And so that is the command this day to all men everywhere, repent and believe. Choose life. What a gift of Christmas that is. Thank you for these things, Lord, we pray that they would be on our hearts and our minds this week and with our family and with our friends, that you would be glorified in them. Even now, before the end of time, when every knee will bow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.